For those of you that don't know me, my name is Justin. I'm the pastor here at Zion and excited to jump into the word today. We are in a series in the book of Luke that we are just starting. We are finishing chapter one of the book of Luke. We've been in it for about six weeks. I believe this is week six today. And what I want to encourage all of you to do when when we are done today, go home and read the first chapter. This is kind of the first half of the introduction of Luke, where he gives a lot of information on the background of John the Baptist. Chapter two, we're going to get more into Jesus and who he was and the promise of him. Uh, But I want to encourage you as we've been through this chapter, go home and read it and see the, the new depths that you get from the Spirit as you read and how he speaks to you from then on. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verse 67 to 80. This is generally known as the Benedictus. This is the famous song of Zechariah. John touched on this last week that when they named John after he is born, it says that Zechariah blessed God and gave him praise. And then we get to see what that song was that he praised God and blessed him with right after in these verses today, which is a song, the the second of the three songs in the introduction of Luke, Blessing God. And so my question for you today as you came is if you ever wonder why, why did God save you? Why did God save you? You know, if I, I went around and asked a bunch of people in this room, why did God save you? I bet I'd get as many different answers as I would get the amount of people that I ask. And so some of the common answers that I get constantly or that I hear people talk about is that God saved me to go to heaven. The reason why I got saved, and and if you grew up in like the 80s and 90s New York City street evangelism, then that is what you were taught because you were told that if you were gonna die tonight, where are you gonna go? And if you have to come up right now so that when you do die, you can what? Go to heaven. And so we have walked around with many people believing that the reason why God saved me is so that I can go to heaven. The other one that I get, I hear often if you watch TV or stay on Instagram enough, you'll believe this, that it's to live a blessed life. Why did God save me? So that I can have blessing and favor everywhere that I go. So that when people see me, they see the comforts and happiness of living the blessed, hashtag blessed, Christian life. Another common answer I hear is to rescue me from my problems. You may have heard a lot about the blessed life and think that is narcissistic and forgot that when we make salvation all about just me being rescued, that that is just as narcissistic as living the blessed life. So why did God save us? Well, right at the beginning of today's narrative, we, we learn, as Luke says, that Zechariah, as he begins to prophesy and sing about what God is doing in this moment in history, this very special moment in history, the Spirit of God fills him when he does this. So when he is giving this prophetic word, he is speaking from the Spirit of God, and we get to hear the very foundation as Luke begins to continue to build this foundation of what is salvation? What is Jesus doing? Why is this such a pivotal moment in history? In this song, he shares why the salvation 
of God is coming. Why the Messiah is coming. Verse 67, it says, And his father, John's father, Zechariah, was filled with this Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, So we know this is not Zechariah's opinion. This is not Luke's opinion. This is the Holy Spirit's opinion. And so let's read together verses 68 to 80. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us and the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So the first part as we look in this, Zechariah begins to bless God and talk about God. Now, you, you have to remember Israel has gone through literally centuries of prophesying about and waiting for the coming Messiah. And so this moment in, in time in history that forever split our calendar in two that we would know as a time before Jesus was born and after he was born was a pivotal time because it was hundreds of years of prophecy being fulfilled in that moment. And so Zechariah begins the Benedictus or his praise to God, his prophetic word about what is going to happen, about God being the one to fulfill his promises, specifically the promise of salvation. He says that God has remembered now, this is not a remember like, do you remember where you put your keys so that you can go out? Right? You could tell I'm adulting real hard in life because that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Right? It's, this is not a remember of like, where did, I, where did I put my cup or where is that book that I was reading? This is not that, that type of This is the remember. When it says God has remembered, it's, it, it's, it's like the word fulfilled, that God has fulfilled his promises to his people, that he remembered his promise or his covenants that he established between him and the fathers, Abraham, and the, the ones that went after him, his salvation or his redemption, his redemptive plan for his people and for the earth. All of these different ideas of God's covenants, God's promises, God's salvific work, 
God's redemption, all of those things that are constantly spoken about of, by the prophets and in the Old Testament are coming together. And Zechariah is bringing them all together to praise because he is saying, now is the moment. God has remembered. He has acted upon. He has fulfilled his promise to every generation. He fulfilled this promise that was spoken by the prophets, he says in verse 70. If you read the prophets, one of my favorite portions in scripture is in the minor prophets, because when you read the minor prophets, you see in the beginning of every single one of them how sinful Israel has been, how much Israel has lost it, and how much they have just walked away from what God has done. But always at the end of every single prophetic book, what do you hear? you hear the prophet speak of the promise that is coming, the Messiah, when God will redeem his people. And so Zechariah says, you've spoken by the, promise, by the prophets of this promise that was coming. This promise that you gave to Abraham in verse 71 and to the fathers in verse 73, you've promised them and spoken to them that this was going to happen. When all the world was lost, when God had looked at his creation just in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 and said, all is lost in the Tower of Babel, and he sees that all of mankind have conspired to come and try to be his equal, the pride of humanity, and then he scatters them. The very next verse, we meet Abraham. When it looked like all was lost, when all the people of the earth had rejected God, God looks at Abraham and he makes him his own. And he says he is going to raise up his own people through whom all the nations on the earth will be blessed. The promise to Abraham is being fulfilled in this moment. The promise to deliver them from their enemies and from those who hate them or their oppressors and to show mercy to his people. Now remember, this mercy is that has said in the Old Testament that loyal, faithful, loving kindness of God. The promise, the covenant that God made that he will deliver his people has come. Zechariah in this moment is speaking to something that all of the Prophets of old, they wished they were there for that time, but he was there to say that the time has been fulfilled. God, you have acted. The time of redemption, the time of salvation is here and is now. See, as God's people, we don't have to worry about whether or not God fulfills his promises. God always comes through on his word. Now, he may not do it in our timing, but he always delivers on what he promises. Now, if Israel waited for hundreds of years, some thousands of years, for this promise to come into action, I was looking at what is the promise of the church that many of us wait towards and anticipate. And sometimes, if we're honest, we have a hard time doing and we'd rather take what is offered before us and before our eyes right now then wait on the promise of what is given to us in the future. Later on in Luke chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, Jesus says this, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil 
for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. See, in Scripture, we are promised reward in heaven. That if we look at this earth and we look at what we are supposed to give now, the Scriptures talk about sacrifice and shunning earthly rewards and shunning the, the, the riches of the world and the things of this world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, the accolades of men and women, the things that people would shower on us, the, the things that the world will look at and look at, say that is, that is success, that is, that is blessing, that is good, that is what we strive for, that's what we wake up at in the morning for and we are ambitious towards and motivated for. The scriptures constantly say, put those things aside because the path that Jesus calls us to walk on, the narrow path, the hard path, gives up those things. We don't give them up to live eternity in suffering. Well, we give them up because our reward is great in heaven. Because we found the greatest reward that we could ever find, an eternal reward where moth and rust cannot come in and destroy, a reward that no matter what happens will always stay with us, unlike the material and physical things that we can have one day and be gone the next. The reward that we are offered is great and God's promise is good. That God has said his mercy towards us, his, his, his loyalty and his faithfulness towards us throughout all things, that no matter what happens, no matter what people say about us, no matter what it looks like, no matter if people would look at us and say, look at that failure, but in God's eyes, he says, look at that success. That earns reward that will last eternity. The God who stepped outside of time to create time says that for all of time, you will live with me in paradise. And there is nothing greater than getting a promise from one who cannot lie, who has been known to fulfill his promises, has been known to always be faithful to his word and to come through no matter how much his people have been unfaithful to him. Amen. But why does he bring this salvation? Why does the Messiah come? What is it that makes him come and deliver us? Well, Zechariah says in verse 74, by the power of the Spirit, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might what? Serve him without fear. It is so that we can fearlessly serve God. See, some of us want salvation, but we don't want to serve. Did you hear me? We only serve ourselves and what we think will work for our lives. So we heard about a God out there that can solve some of our problems and maybe make us not feel as sad anymore. And so we went and praised him in the hopes that our life would become better. But we did it on our time, with our desires, and with our way of worshiping. 
And we say, God, I'm, I'm going to give you a chance. I heard these good things, and so let me see, let me see what you got up your sleeve. But you got to do it here, and you got to do it at this time, and you got to do it at that moment, because that would be the convenient thing for our life. See, for Americans, freedom from oppression, freedom from the world usually means independence from all. It means autonomy. It goes very far back to the Declaration of Independence. It is this sense of autonomy, this sense of freedom that it, it, it looks at that word and we read the scriptures and we are promised freedom and we look at that and we say, I have freedom so that I can be independent. And we wonder why things like the prosperity gospel come out because that says, well, I can be independent of the world and financially secure in my own right. So that ultimately, God is my piggy bank until I can be free, not only from sin in the world, but from him as well, to live my own life and to be my own God and serve my own will. See, when we look at salvation, we don't see it as a transfer of masters. When we look at salvation, we see it as a, a severance and a cut from every form of servitude. And that's because the whole gospel has not been preached to us. See, I want you to read this with me, this passage of scripture, Romans chapter six, verse 16. I want you to listen to what Paul is saying here. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become what? Slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members or your body as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards of righteousness. But what fruit were you getting that time from the things in which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In most of our theologies, Jesus serves us and not the other way around. If you see the scriptures as an opinion that you can possibly listen to or possibly obey or might be a good idea, then your theology is one where Jesus is servant to you as master. If you look at the scriptures and you look at what the Holy Spirit leads you to do as a good idea, but not the ultimate idea, then you do not serve Jesus as master. 
See, when we walk into the kingdom, when we are saved, it is so that we can serve God. Some of you have been looking for purpose. Some of you have been looking for what you should do in life. You've been asking around. You've been going to different motivational speeches, and and you've been looking on TikTok and Instagram, and, and, and you've been paying money to find out, what am I supposed to, what am I called to do? And maybe there's been a lot of Christians that have said, maybe this is how you find your calling at this workshop and this seminar. Or maybe they've said, you, you gotta do this or you gotta do that. When ultimately in scripture, the moment you are redeemed by Christ, you find your calling. And that calling is this, to serve God as master. When Paul found his calling, when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, Paul found a master. And that master was going to lead him in the best life Paul ever thought he could ever have. No. When Jesus told Ananias to go speak to Paul, he said, tell him how much he will suffer for my name. I call that verse a theology killer. Some of you have been suffering and asking Jesus, where are you? When Jesus has been asking, where are you? Because our theology is not grand enough, is not big enough to include that I am a slave to someone. Because all we think about in leadership All we think about in earthly masters is how the world sees leadership, how the world sees servitude, and we think, I'm beneath that. I don't want to serve an earthly master. We think of our boss. We think of that other pastor, that other scandal that just popped off. We think of that other thing that that happened on the news, this other leader, this other teacher, abused power, abused authority. We think, no, I, I am not that. And so what we have done is we have made this such a dirty word that we cannot comprehend that God calls us to live it out. And we forget that in the kingdom of God, leadership is upside down. That how God created us to live was to thrive under healthy authority, was to serve him and glorify him and live the best life only when we are in submission to the greatest authority. And some pastors will lie to you and tell you, that authority is me, submit to me, do everything I want. And then you are in the will of God. And so we've looked at the church and we looked at this theology and we've said, no, I will never serve another person again. Good, take that energy, but don't take it to God. Take it to man only. Because the only one that we have purpose to serve for, that we are called to be a slave to righteousness towards, is God. If you look at Christianity as an add-on to your life, as an option during your morning or during your week, if you look 
at being, doing what the scripture says as something that maybe I'll get to one day, then you have lost the perspective of the reason why you are saved. Then you do need a conference to find your purpose because, honey, you lost it. Your purpose is not to live the best life you can think of. Your purpose is not to make the most money that you can make. Your purpose is not to be the most comfortable that you can be. Your purpose is not to enjoy the most entertainment that you can enjoy. Your purpose is not to just endure what other people tell you you should endure. Your purpose is one thing. Those who are saved by God. Those who the yoke of oppression of the enemy has been broken from your neck and chains have been torn off your ankles. Your purpose is to serve God. Stop wondering. Stop praying about, God, what should I do today? You've, you've, you've ruined so many hours trying to figure out what you should do that you've lost the moment of being in prayer to just enjoy God and do what he tells you to do. Come on, somebody, man. You've been so much trying to figure out what you're supposed to do. You ain't even opened the Bible. You've been wondering so hard. How do I enjoy the blessing of God, the peace that has said? the faithfulness, the joy of God. What am I doing wrong? And God's just saying, come, obey. Serve me. Serve me. Man, some of you are having a hard time with that. Serve him. Scripture is clear. If you are not a slave to righteousness, you are a slave to sin. You can lie to yourself all you want. That you don't serve nobody, that you serve yourself, that, that you're not a part of that. You don't serve this, so you don't serve that. But let me tell you, you serve the enemy when you are not serving God. You are a slave to sin. That Paul says leads to death every single time. Your opinion, guess what, leads to death. What you think best of, guess what, leads to death. What you want again, guess what, leads to death. But when you are a slave to God, when you are a slave to righteousness, when you say, God, what I want in my life is whatever you want in my life. When you say, God, how you want to structure my morning is how I want to structure my morning. God, how I live my night times is how you live, want me to live my nighttime. What job I walk and how I perform at my job is how you want me to perform at my job. When you say that, guess what? What does Paul say? Eternal life every time. but we cannot comprehend independence from sin without autonomy of self. It's the American dream, and it has become the American gospel. But why does he say fearlessly? The reason he says fearlessly is because it takes courage to lay down your life Every morning, literally when, when Luke was writing this, the church was laying down their life 
physically. They were being martyred, killed for their faith. In Hebrews, you read what it was doing to the congregation that it was destroying them from the inside out because they said, enough is enough, God. How long will we lose our lives, our homes, our properties, our loved ones for this? And the answer in Hebrews is that we are not of the people who shrink back. Have we counted the cost? We struggle giving up an evening of entertainment. When Luke was writing to people who struggled with giving up their lives. The call to do this was in holiness and righteousness. This double combination, a lot of times in the scripture, when they repeat something in a different words, they're trying to get your attention from it. So he's trying to get your attention here in holiness and righteousness, this combination. It reflects God's moral demand for obedience. That when you serve him, you are serving under a king. When was the last time you read in history that a king's decree was optional for their subjects? I'm telling you, some people are having a hard time with this because we have given in to the American ideal of freedom and independence. And you have not yet bowed fully your knee before God. You have not yet said, my life is yours. Do what you will. You may have said it as lip service to God, but you have not said it all consumingly in your life that God, whatever you want, really, whatever you want, it is yours. Whatever discomfort that I have to live in, whatever sacrifice that I have to give, whatever world that you want me to step away from, God, it is yours. I will not be like Lot's wife who looks back. Where you say in the gospel, Jesus says, whoever takes part in the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Have we counted the cost of giving up what we want to live in God's salvation and service. Zechariah says forever, for all of our days. Paul says what it leads to is eternal life. This is something that when you walk into it, if you cannot comprehend how it could be amazing to be in service to God for all of eternity, then I would put before you that you have never truly sat in the presence of the almighty king before. How is it that when David sat in his presence, he said, better is one day than a thousand days elsewhere, that he would rather do door service in the temple of God than be a thousand days doing anything else that he could imagine? Because when you get a taste of the presence of God, when you sit in his glory and in his beauty, you say, God, this is better than anything I have imagined. This is better than any machination that I have come up with. This is better than anything the world has devised for me to get my dopamine from. This is better. And the same words that David said will come out of my mouth. Better is one day, God but you offer eternity. You offer eternity to be before you, eternity to sit at your throne, eternity to worship and serve and obey you forever, all of our days. See, John's mission, John was born for this purpose, this one purpose, 
to prepare the way for Jesus. That later on, what we read of John is he says, don't make my name great, I am nothing. Let Jesus' name be made great, that I would decrease and that he would increase. He knew that the story was God's and that obedience was just his to be a part of. And so his part in life, man, if someone came to us and said in the role, you're the supporting actor and that's all you're gonna do for eternity, we would be tight. Must not know my resume. Must not know my skills. You know how long I've been doing this? John gladly knew his calling was one of preparation for the one who was to come. That he was going to speak of forgiveness of sins. And why was God coming to forgive sins? It says because of his tender mercy or his compassionate, faithful, loyal love towards his people. Not because we deserved it, fam. Not because we worked so hard for it. Not because we are so great. But because of his mercy. His compassionate, tender, loving, loyal mercy towards us. And it will only happen, Zechariah says, through Jesus. It says the sunrise here. Another version says the rising light to give light to those who are in darkness and the shadow of death. He will enter into the worst places of our life. He will enter into the worst circumstances. He will enter into whatever murky contraption, whatever it is that we've gotten ourselves into, he will enter into the darkness, to the shadow of death itself. He will enter in. And he will be the rising light. And then what will happen? Again, Zechariah reinforces this point. That after that, there will be guiding to the way of peace. That he will guide us to the way of peace. The way is the first time you see this here in Scripture in Luke-Acts. In Acts, this thing gets developed, the way. This is what the disciples followed, what they gave themselves to, is what the first name of Christianity was. And so Luke is giving us this first little nugget here of what it is that they were giving themselves over to, the way of peace, the way that we are called to live in, the steps that our feet are ordered towards in God of peace, of shalom in the Old Testament. This was harmony with God, harmony with what he called us to do. This is one, one uh, um, theologian put it this way, this peace, this shalom, the person's total well-being as a result of being in harmony with God. That when we are a slave to righteousness, when we serve God and his commands are my commands, when his ways are my ways, when his thoughts are my thoughts, I live in total shalom, total peace, total harmony with God. 
that no matter what circumstances, no matter what the world thinks, no matter what people say about me, that I have complete shalom, joy, peace. And it does not matter what happens to me, at me, around me. Because my success is measured by one thing. Have I served God? And as I serve him, the promise of shalom comes. The promise of total well-being because of being in harmony with God comes. Church, our salvation is to serve God. And in doing so, he will guide us into the way of true shalom. Don't worry about the byproducts. Don't worry about the peace. Don't worry about the joy. Don't worry about the fruit. That all comes when we serve God. As Paul says, when you are a slave to God, you inherit eternal life. Stand with me, let's pray.